We're going to jump right in there because we got a lot of information. Last week, the weather was bad, so quite a few people were gone. So I'll just try to catch you up quickly, and then we'll go from there. Uh, several weeks ago, I told him last week, several weeks ago, Shane brought me a CD series by Willie George. If you do not know who Willie George is, Willie George started out as a children's minister. Probably one of the, if probably the most anointed children's minister I've ever known. There may be others out there that are more, but I haven't personally experienced him. Phenomenal ministry. And now he pastors a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Church on the Move. When our young leaders go down, we've sent them down for conferences. We sent them down, other people down for children's service uh, conferences through the years. And they have that church there. And then they have, they run the camp where we send our children and youth to occasionally to Camp Dry Gulch. And so... Um, that's who Willie George is. He's the pastor, the head of, over that. And I really like his teaching because he's very practical. And so when he, Shane gave me these CDs and it was entitled The Ideal Family, my first thought is what was Shane trying to tell me, okay? That we need to get our act together or whatever. And, and I sat down to listen to this and it was so good. And there were things, he did four I, I believe it was a series of four, and we're going to get it down to two, but there were so many truths in there, so many things that basically we had had in our hearts for years, but by listening to that, it helped me to verbalize it, and so that's what we want to do. And so don't get nervous and don't get scared, because last week, if you were here, if you heard the message, we realized that there is no ideal family. And, and we talked about you know, it used to be a kind of a Mayberry culture and, and, you know, and leave it to Beaver and the perfect dad and the perfect, you know, and it's not, it never really was like that, I don't think. Maybe a few families were, but it's his, even today it is so much more complicated. There are so many more different things to deal with, so many more problems, so many different kinds of families, single families, you know, double families. There is no regular family. And so we can't just come and say, listen, you got to do A, B, C, D, that's it. But the word of God does have an answer for all your problems, for all your deals. And, and God created the family. First, he created the relationship with him, and that should always be first and foremost. Then he created the family, even before he created the church. And so the family is important. And when we're talking about the family, you know, not just how to raise your kids, not just the immediate family, but the extended family. And really, all this applies to any of your relationships, your church family, to you know, your work relationships, your friend relationships, all this stuff can be applied. So we just kind of have to take the nuggets that we give you and then just apply them to your life in particular. Last week, we talked a lot about grace and you hear grace and you get some of these concepts, grace and righteousness and all these things. And, and they're so almost beyond our thinking. It's sometimes it's hard to grasp it. But grace is just not... Oh, an object, the object of grace is just not to allow us to live in unbridled sin. Just to go out and do anything we want, whatever we feel like, and just, oh, God will forgive me. That's not the object of grace. The 
aim of God's grace is to bring us to a place where we desire to overcome sin in our life with God's help. Grace applied correctly will bring us to a place where we want to do better and with the help of God we can. You know, all of us have habits. All of us have issues in our life. And sometimes you want to deal with them and your intentions are good, but you just can't overcome it. But with that, that's the purpose of grace then. God's grace will develop, first of all, and we've got to realize sometimes it takes time. People don't just change overnight. And then when you deal with one thing, then sometimes something else shows up. And so it's a continual process of dealing with God's grace. But that's what it's for. God understands. He sent Jesus. Jesus went through all these things that we did. And so he understands what you're doing and it's his intention to help us deal with those things. That's what grace is. And he will enable us and help us to do those things that we can't do just on our own. So very simply, if you're operating in God's grace properly, you won't be backsliding. Because God's grace always is endeavoring to pull you higher, to help you do better, to move beyond. So you're always going forward, never going backward in your relationship with God. So this week, we're going to, so that's really just a quick, very quick summary of what we talked about last week, just kind of the high points. This week, we're going to deal with how do you deal with certain family issues, relationship issues, scripturally. Now, through the years, everybody's heard a lot of things. And sometimes those things can get embedded in our thinking, and they aren't necessarily even true scripturally. Sometimes we take a, a portion of scripture and just, you know, take a, a, a word and we build a sentence or a paragraph out of it. And just because something worked for somebody one way doesn't mean we have to always do it that same way. God will lead us and teach us and help us according to each and every situation. So we're going to learn how God deals scripturally with things. So there have been a lot of teachings out there in the church and even not in the church that aren't necessarily scripturally, but we get so accustomed to them and used to them that we think that's what has to be done. So maybe I'll jar your thinking a little bit, but we'll see. Don't get mad at me. Just hang in there till the end. And you realize this is one thing you need to realize, and people have trouble with this sometimes. When you read the scriptures, when you read the word of God, and you can take one little scripture, and if you just build a, a, a whole philosophy out of that, it's out of context. No one scripture is ever meant to stand alone. And when God deals with something, when he deals with us, there's always two sides to what he's telling us. Basically, there's God's side and there's our side. It's kind of Willie George used this illustration. It's like a $5 bill. When you have a $5 bill, there's something printed on both sides. And if you get one that is blank on one side, it's counterfeit. Okay, so it, there's always the two sides to it. There's, there's the God side and there's the man side. There's God's perfect purpose. We talked about last week, Jesus came with the ideal. 
What, what's it like in heaven? He, it's, we talk about in, in the Lord's Prayer, he prays, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's the ideal in heaven, and he tried to bring that to earth. And he wants us to come to that point and attain that. But he understands, because he lived here, he knows what it's like. And he understands that we don't always get exactly where we're supposed to go, just when we're going to be. That's what he's, he understands that. So the idea that God is just in heaven and he just, it's the Ten Commandments and, and that's it. That's, that's not accurate. There's always two sides to that. And so we're going to talk about that. If you turn to Genesis, we'll start in Genesis. And this is kind of helps us to understand that. So if you have these questions, how do I deal with a person that creates turmoil everywhere they go? How do I reconcile and forgive someone that has hurt me or my children possibly over and over again without any willingness to change? How do I deal with family or friends that interfere with my immediate family, my spouse or children, and they continue to create controversy? How do I forgive a family member that has molested me or my children? How do I deal with a parent or a person that I feel no love for, possibly one that has neglected, abused, or abandoned me? How does God expect us to deal with those things? And that's when we need to realize there's the ideal, and then, then he brings his grace to help us deal with that. And there's always those two, two ways, two sides. Not really two ways, but just he brings the ideal to the real, to the practical. And so if you look at Genesis, and we'll start in Genesis chapter 2, and this is the main truth today. This is the whole thing that we want to get. If you don't get anything else, get this fact. There's always two ways God deals with us. And they are by truth and mercy. And truth, this is what you need to get, truth and mercy are always meant, always, always, always meant to go hand in hand. Truth and mercy were never meant to stand separately. Okay? Truth and mercy. And if you understand God, he's truth, but he's always mercy. The two together. So truth and mercy always go together. And we see that all the way through scripture. If you look, I was talking to Mike about this. And he says all of a sudden he starts reading all these scriptures. And you can go all through and it always has truth. And mercy together, we'll give you some scriptures in a little bit. And in Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to start with verse 8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and of evil." Now, always, so often, when we hear about the story of the Garden of Eden, we hear about this tree that's planted in the middle of the garden, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God instructs Adam not to eat of that tree. We all know that. We've all heard that. Don't know exactly why. I still don't get what, what, what's the deal that he didn't want to, you know, I don't really know. Well, you can ask him that when you get there, Okay. But the thing is, we hear about that one tree. Look at verse 9. He said, 
the Lord God made every tree to grow. There wasn't just one tree. There were lots of trees. And he talks about two specifically. One was the tree of life. That's his mercy. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's his truth. So every situation, when God comes on the scene and God deals with us, he deals with truth and he deals with mercy. And they always have to go hand in hand. Now here's nugget number one. The, remember, the, first, the main thing you've got to get today is mercy and truth always go together. But here's nugget number one. When dealing with your kids, don't just deal with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, don't, everything shouldn't be no, 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 no. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. There were other trees in the garden. God forbid that one, but he said you can eat of all the others. And I guess when we first came to Norfolk and we were, you know, around some other ministers and, and some real legalistic Christians, that's when I began to see that. It just everything was, no, 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 you can't do that. And it made God seem like this big, for, you know, awful dictator on the throne. And back then, we used to have lots of services. You know, our church would have a service, and it would go three, four, five nights a week, and then there'd be another. And, and these kids are getting hauled all over. Now, I, kids need to be in church. They need to, it doesn't hurt them to come and sit on Sunday morning. It doesn't hurt them to come on Wednesday night. But I'm telling you, I know what it was like when I was a kid. I wouldn't have wanted to have been there 29 out of 30 nights of the month. You've got to give kids something else. You've got to give them some alternatives. You know, you've got to, the thing we started doing was if, you, if we had a lot of church services and then when Caleb was little and he had to come and, and sit through those, then we always had a party afterwards. We'd go home and make pizza and, and make something fun. So it, was, it wasn't always can't do this because we've got to go to church, but it was we can do this and it should be fun. Yes, you're going to church on Sunday morning, but if you go with a good attitude, we can go fishing in the afternoon. So everything shouldn't be what we're taking away. There was more what God was giving us than what he was taking away. And, and so we need to deal with our children that way and not become so legalistic. It's our duty to not just train them what they shouldn't do, but in put into them what they should do and why they should do it and the blessing of God for doing that. So when you deal with kids, don't just forbid everything. Provide a wholesome and good alternative. Now, I'll read you this scripture. You can write it down. For the sake of time, we won't go there. Proverb, but this is very good. Proverbs 16, maybe you want to turn there. Go ahead and turn there. It is really good. Proverbs 16, verse 6. Proverbs is easy to find. Proverbs 16, 6. Remember, mercy and truth always go hand in hand. Proverbs 16, 6 says, In mercy and truth, <clears throat> atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Very simply, by mercy and truth, 
Iniquity is purged. We bring about life change when we properly apply mercy and truth. Life change comes in our lives when we allow God to, to work his truth and his mercy in us. That's what brings about life change. Now, transgression is a one-time sin. <clears throat> when we transgress, we make a mistake, we commit a sin, we can go to God one time, pray and be forgiven, apologize to someone, be forgiven. That's a transgression. Here it's talking about iniquity. Iniquity is caused from a flaw in character or an attitude that produces a certain sin over and over. Now, last week we were talking about some things, and at the end of the service, I wasn't going to mention this. I was just going to leave this alone and be gracious to Mike, but he brought it up. So now it's fair game. Okay. <laughs> it's fair game. He got up and he told about the story of his shoes, if you were here. And just briefly, we have lived in the house that we live in for 15 years. And you come in our garage, and you come, and there's two steps up into this little landing. There's two steps, a door, a landing. And that landing, either you can come up one more step into our dining room, <clears throat> or you can make a left and go down, and there's a very steep set of steps going downstairs. And there's a light out there, but it's kind of dark if we don't have the light on because there's no windows there. Now, we have lived in this house 15 years, and over to the left of the doorway, we have a rug, and that's where you put your shoes. Because, yes, when you come in, all 48, there. All 40, yes, I realize the pile gets about this high sometimes. <laughs> you can tell we've been dealing with this over and over and over again. So the shoes go there, or when you come up a step by the patio door, there's another rug where you can sit your shoes. So yes, he wants to be nice. He doesn't want to track in, especially because we have new carpet. So he wants to take his shoes off. That's a good thing. But he has developed a habit this year that when he comes in the back door, he kicks his shoes off and he leaves them right there, right in this path. So you know how nice I am. You don't need to laugh. Anyway, so when he first started doing it, I said, please, Mike, don't do that. It's right where we walk. Just sit him to the side or bring him over here. Turn around, he did it again. He did it again. He did it. That, that would probably be considered iniquity. <laughs> <laughs> so the d real situation is... <laughs> or just he was just providing us with a great example you know it's nothing understand this it's not unto divorce it's just a thing we're dealing with you have a lot of ministers that will get up and they don't let you know that they deal with real things we deal with real things all the time okay so I come out of the bedroom with the laundry basket this is the real crux of the issue and it's here, and it's dark, and I'm used to walking through there. And when I come out and his shoes are there, it's not good. 
And so one day, after we'd been through this numerous times, I came out with the laundry basket, hit those, and almost went down the steps. And we discussed it again. <laughs> and that's when the shoes started getting set outside, because I was trying to bring truth. <laughs> Mercy hadn't quite set in yet. Truth. So we've been, this has been an ongoing thing, and then last week, Caleb went charging through, and he stumbled from the shoes there. Oh, yeah. yeah, he did. But there's always an excuse, well, I don't want to track in. Well, sit him over here, okay? Sit him over here. Sit him in there. I don't care. Just sit him out of the way. So last Sunday, he comes, and he gets up, and he talks about this. So he's well aware of it, Okay. So last Sunday afternoon, it was snowing, right? He was on the couch in the living room. I was downstairs, and Gage, the 100-pound yellow lab Marmaduke dog, was laying in the dining room. And Gage heard me downstairs, and Gage never walks anywhere. Gage jumps, lurches, screeches, runs, and all of a sudden we hear this, boom, 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 and the house shook. And Mike says, what was that? I says, Gage hit the shoes. <laughs> Do you know what? He loves that dog so much. The shoes haven't been there anymore this week. He would hate to hurt poor Gagey. <laughs> but Caleb and me... Ah, I don't want to get the carpet dirty. <laughs> I know it's funny. That's why I brought it up. But seriously, grace, yes, mercy. But mercy and truth always have to go together. And the truth is, he is more concerned about the dog than he was me. Nugget number two, in good relationships, there are always two sides. And sometimes you have to overlook the small stuff. You need to distinguish between what's important and what isn't important. But on the other hand, the small things done over and over again unchecked are what usually creates tension in a relationship. Okay? Neither mercy or truth are effective by themselves. That's why they have to go together. They need to work together. Mercy alone, mercy only, creates indulgence. A church or a family that operates only in mercy will be full of sin. A church, a family, or an individual that only operates in mercy will be full of sin. But a church, a family, a person that only operates in truth will be full of legalism. A church or a family that operates only in truth becomes very harsh and legalistic and there's no real flow of God's love. Now Jesus was the embodiment of truth and mercy. Um, let's look at 1 John. We'll look at a couple examples here. 1 John chapter 1.
We'll read 1 John 1, verse 14, and 1 John, or not 1 John, just John, regular John. Did I say 1 John? John 1, verse 14, and John 1, verse 17. John 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, that would be Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, or full of mercy and truth. So Jesus was full of mercy and truth. And John bore witness of him, cried out, saying that this was he whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace, or mercy, and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now look over at John chapter 8. Now this is how, remember we said there was always two sides that Jesus taught, taught or, or brought to us. He would give us a truth, and then he would take the story, like we just did, and try to bring it home. Try to make it real. Try to make it livable in our lives. So in John, verse 8, we'll begin, and I'm going to read this, verses 1 through 12. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them, taught them truth. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now I talked about this just a little last week. If they were so concerned about this woman in a, committing adultery, then why didn't they bring the guy too? She didn't do it by herself. They were not interested in truth. And Jesus knew it. Their purpose here was to entrap him. Because they were going to quote the scriptures from Moses. Okay? And, and Jesus talked about forgiveness. So they're going to try to entrap him, and he knew it. He says, teacher, this woman was caught in the uh, act of adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is Without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone. So they left. He, he got them at their own game. And the woman standing in the midst. So now he said, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. That's mercy. He'd been teaching. That was truth. Then they all laughed except her. And when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Mercy. And then he says, But go and sin no more. He did not deny the fact that she had been committing adultery or whatever else she'd been doing. 
he spoke the truth, but he did it by mercy. So that's how God, that's how Jesus dealt with people. And he was the embodiment of mercy and truth. Now remember, mercy alone creates indulgence. Right now, we have a culture in this country of indulgence. Political correctness or lack, a better way of putting that, we hear about political correctness. Political correctness is a lack of truthful confrontation. And it has allowed sin to abound in this nation. And any time a minister or a Christian or anyone speaks up for truth, they are bullied and intimidated by an element in society that does not want to hear truth. Specifically, example, Tim Tebow was going to speak in some church a week or two ago. I don't know all the particulars. But this church taught that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And a group of people tried to intimidate Tim Tebow into going to that church because that church didn't believe what they believed. Now, I saw a bumper sticker coming down First Street the other day, and it says, truth is truth, whether you believe it or not. And I thought that was good. Truth is truth, whether you believe it or not. Now, just because that church believes that marriage should be between a man and woman does not mean that perhaps that church isn't operating in mercy. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But that organization has no right to intimidate somebody for standing up what they believe. So, children are indulged in this society all the time, and children that are indulged never develop a conscience. People are so worried about self-esteem, and in fact, many self-esteem problems stem from being overindulged. Not all, but some. We make excuses for ourselves. We overindulge ourselves. That's an easy one. We are very merciful upon ourselves, more merciful upon ourselves than we are anybody else. We make excuses for ourselves, we make excuses for our children, or we make excuses for our friends. And when we never face the truth, we enable bad behavior. Bad behavior promotes low self-esteem because it brings about rejection. If you don't know how to behave in an acceptable way, you will experience rejection. Nugget number three. When you refuse to receive truth about yourself, when you refuse to receive truth about your kid, about your family member, about your friend, what you are doing is pushing them further into conflict. When I first taught at Fairbury, there was a kid, he had a twin brother, and I'm telling you, that was the most aggravating kid I ever had in a classroom in my life. And it was, come to find out, it was his cousin. I mean, this kid was just, we'd start out on the stage, and I walked across one day, and I was this far from him. And he takes a ball, you know, a dodgeball ball, and he kicks it just as hard as he could kick it right up into the lights of the stage. And I confronted him about it. And he looked me flat in the face and denied it. 
And I was standing right there. He denied it. He would not face the truth for anything. He had grown up later. See, I didn't know him at this time. Later when I found out, it, his, his, this kid's dad, I think they were divorced. I think his dad was an alcoholic. They were raised in a very neglected environment. They just did what they want. They were indulged. And he had no conscience. He didn't know the right from wrong. He could just flat look you in the face, tell you something that you knew wasn't true, and he wouldn't believe it. But he had grown up in complete indulgence. When you receive, and, and you know what? He has gone on. I don't know where, even where he is now, but he, got on, he went on from one problem to another. When you refuse to receive truth about yourself, about your kid, you are pushing them further into conflict. Would you say that we have too much conflict in this country today? That's a no-brainer. Not enough truth. Our national debt is out of control. But there have been such a refusal to face the fact, to face the truth by so many people and what has resulted? Conflict. When you don't face truth, you're going to develop conflict. Sooner or later, if you refuse to face truth, you will have to face consequences. That's so important. Sooner or later, if you refuse to face truth, you have to face consequences. And it's better to deal with a small thing than to have to deal with it when the consequences are significant. If your kid gets in trouble, every kid's going to get in trouble. At some point, let them deal with the consequences when they're insignificant consequences. Better than life-changing consequences, life-threatening consequences. Most of you know this, some of you don't, so I'm going to repeat it quickly. In 1996, my mom was killed in a car accident. My dad was driving, my mom was riding, my mom was killed instantly, my dad was hurt. Pretty bad. By a young man that had lost his license, was driving anyway, had been driving... After he'd lost his license, he'd been ticketed again for not driving without his license. He was, didn't have a car. He was driving somebody else's car. He had no insurance. He was driving at an excessive speed. He was not drinking. It was an accident. He hit him, and she was killed. God's grace worked in my life. I never had a lot of bitterness towards this kid, just from the get-go. I just... One thing, we had received some wise advice and said, just get a lawyer. And that way the lawyer had to deal with him and I didn't. But a couple months after the accident, the court from Platte County called and said, you know, that they, they were pressing charges, that he was charged with vehicular homicide. And they said, we need a statement from you as to what, you would like to happen in this situation. We want to know what you want to proceed with. Well, about a year before that, there'd been a, a family that was in church. They're no longer here. It was in a bad accident. And uh, some kid driving had run through a stop sign at excessive speed and hit them. 
and they were really hurt. God miraculously healed them. But they had horrendous medical bills and all the complications that ensue. And some nice, well-meaning Christian had told them that they shouldn't what press charges, not necessarily press charges, but go ahead with the consequences. They should just forgive them and forget. Now, I don't know just off the top of my head, but somewhere in the Bible, and you can look it up on your own if you're interested, there's a scripture that talks about a good government. The responsibility of a good government is to carry out laws. Okay? So there's nothing wrong if somebody breaks a law to let the government deal with that. So that's what the government was dealing with this kid's situation in Platte County. And I knew already, I didn't believe this fallacy that you should just turn your back. I believed from the very beginning, truth needed to be confronted. He needed to be accountable. Well, about a week later, before I had to give them my decision, I got a phone call and it was from the young man's parole officer. Now this kid had apparently just been in trouble all of his life. And this is what the parole officer said to me. He said, I can't tell you what to do, but I will make this recommendation and let you know this kid's background. He has never been held accountable for anything in his life. And if he continues on this course, there will be a lot more people hurt, including himself. So, I already knew, but that just sealed the deal. I would write a letter, and I wrote a letter, and it basically stated that yes, I understood it was an accident. But the accident could have been avoided if he was considerate of anyone beside himself and if he was following the law. And I sent that in and then we had to go to Columbus and sit through the court hearing. And he didn't have a jury, the judge decided it. And we went and we sat in the back and it didn't take long, the judge convicted him and set a, a later date for, wow, what he was going to, the sentencing hearing, I guess it was. And at the moment that the young man heard that he had been convicted, he slammed his fist down on the table where he was sitting, got up, yelled something, and stormed out. He had been indulged all his life. And you see, as Christians, if we continually turn our back and bury our head to those kind of things, people are going to be hurt. Truth has to come. Now, he didn't really, vehicular homicide in Nebraska at that time did not carry very much of a sentence. He had like a, a year, and he'd already done some time. So a year for killing somebody and changing a bunch of other people's lives really wasn't much, but at least he had some consequences and hopefully he's changed. And so we need to recognize that. If we just, we have been taught in some instances in the church, in church today, in, in the world, forgive, 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 forgive. And yes, forgiveness is a wonderful thing. 
But if a person does not receive the truth, and we just continually go to them, go to them, go to them, and there's no consequence, no truth, then change never will come. And what we, if we really love some per, somebody, we want them to change for the better. God always, remember grace, God always wants us to change to the better. So how do we apply mercy and truth? 15. I know this is long. Are, are we all right for a few more minutes? Matthew 15. We'll get this finished up quickly here. Matthew 15. This is how Jesus, one more example of how Jesus dealt with it. Jesus 15 verses 21 through 28. And we've heard these stories. But this is the story of the Canaanite woman. And you understand Canaanites, they weren't the Jews. They were a heathen people. They believed in adultery. They sacrificed their children to idols. They just did things that we don't even dream of nowadays, but they did these kind of things. Matthew 21, 15, 21. Okay, it says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed the region of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, usually, in, you read the other stories, and somebody would come to him, a Jew would come to him and say that, and he would go immediately and heal them. But he didn't in this case. Remember, she was Canaanite. She wasn't of the house of Israel. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out. She's annoying. Get rid of her. And he answered and he said to her, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You need to understand his commission. God sent Jesus to Israel to proclaim the truth, to do what he needed to do. Then he raised up the apostles and, and then ultimately the church thereafter and they were to go into the heathen nations. But Jesus' call was to Israel. Now we need to understand, here's a little side note. So many people try to do so many things that they've never been called to. You need to stick with your commission. That's why we have so many false teachings in the body of Christ. We get so many people trying to teach and they're not even called to do that. Okay? We get pastors that spend all their time running out onto the mission field when they're not called to be missionaries. If you're called to be a missionary, be a missionary with all your heart. If you're called to pay a pastor, be a pastor with all your heart. It doesn't mean you can't go occasionally, but your main focus should be that call and that commission. If you're called to children's church, there is no better place for you to be. Be there and do it with all your heart. Okay, that's a, just a quick side note. So Jesus said, I was sent, was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was truth. Now, she said, then she came and worshipped him. She didn't get mad. She didn't get offended. She didn't throw a temper tantrum. She didn't say, you're hard, you're mean. You didn't smile at me. You don't love me. She came and worshipped him. And she said, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread. He insulted her again. It was the truth. 
But he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. She acknowledged the truth. Instead of having a hissy fit, she acknowledged the truth. She said, yes, Lord. But even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you so desire. Because he presented truth. She received truth, and then mercy and forgiveness had its full effect. She, because she received truth. Mercy is given by God to people who acknowledge truth. That's so important. Mercy is given to people by God to those people that acknowledge truth. But when people refuse to acknowledge truth, they do not get all of God's mercy. Stop and think about that. Think about that in your personal life. If you refuse to acknowledge truth, you do not get all of God's mercy. Let's explain it this way. Salvation is available to everyone. Jesus came. We're going to be talking about that in the next few weeks. Jesus came. He died on a cross. We can't even comprehend everything he went through. He did it out of mercy and love for all people. And he extended that mercy to everyone. It is available to the worst sinner. It is available to everyone. But it is never brought into completion, complete fruition, until that person, until each individual acknowledges the truth of their sin, and that they can't do it on their own. They have to acknowledge truth and receive help from God before that forgiveness is complete. So how does that relate to our relationships? Many people in churches push us to forgive, forgive, forgive. It's all mercy with no truth, and it only enables people to continue on in sin and they feed on that lack of confrontation. The young man that caused that accident, the parole officer said that his parents never made any rules, never made any regulations. It was just mercy, 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 mercy all the time to him. They enabled that destruction that came in his life. Many people have the false notion that if we just love people enough, we will change them. If that's true, Jesus certainly loved us enough, and not everybody changes. In reality, in reality and scripturally, if we do not combine, combine truth and mercy, there will never be real change. It takes the two working together. Speak the truth in love, you are not operating in love if you avoid truth. One more quick story. I told you last week about the accident I was in. We had gone to the state basketball tournament. I was about 18 years old, first year of college. We did not behave well that weekend. There was a lot of drinking going on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And on Sunday, we came back. We dropped our friends off in Lee and Creston and cut across and we hit a soft shoulder. I wasn't driving, my friend was. We rolled the car, landed on the top, came back, we got out, everything was fine, it seemed like. The next day, I got sick. 
And so my folks made me go to the doctor, and the doctor put me in the hospital immediately. And he believed that I had damaged, somehow damaged my kidney. And he said, we're going to run one more test. And he prepared my folks. He said, get ready to go to Omaha. I believe this is something we can't deal with, we can't handle here at the hospital in Genoa. And so um, we're going to run one more test and see what it shows us, and then we'll go to Omaha from there. In the meantime, everybody left, and I was in the hospital room. And I grew up in a Methodist church, and at this time we had a wonderful Methodist pastor. He had gotten me spirit-filled. He always spoke the truth in my life. He was so good. And he came in, and he knew me. And I don't suppose he knew exactly what we were doing that weekend, but he probably had a pretty good idea. And he sat down, and I told him what was going on, and he told me, he said, I could pray for you right now, but you are in such a backslidden condition. What good would it do me? That was truth. He saved my life. I said, I know. I am so sorry. I don't want to live like this. Pray with me. Let's get this taken care of. And I was, since you're laying in a hospital bed thinking you're going to get a kidney removed, you suddenly get really repentant. But it had been eaten away at me for a long time. It was conscience. I knew what I was doing.